great help to me if you would please keep Isaiah 6 open in front of you. And uh, as always, there is an outline on the inside of the white bulletin uh, that gives you some idea where we're going in the next few minutes. Let's ask for God's help. Our gracious God, you are so glorious that the heavens cannot contain you. And yet you have assured us that you dwell with those who have a humble and contrite heart. And we pray that just as Jesus left the majestic glory of your heavenly throne to dwell amongst men, that you would come and dwell amongst us this morning by your Spirit, through your word. We pray that your divine finger will help us as we read your word. That your finger will point with great skill into our hearts, applying your word to each one of us individually and personally. And most of all we pray that as your word both humbles us and lifts us up with a great sense of gospel grace and joy, that we might enjoy communion with you as dearly loved children enjoying communion with their Father. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Last Sunday morning we were trying to discover what the Bible means when it talks about the glory of God. And uh, we said that one of the things that we need to understand when we hear this word glory is that we matter to God. Most Christians don't know that or they keep forgetting it. So can I start this morning by reminding you that you matter to God. Why do we say that? Well, you remember from last week that in Exodus 34, uh, Moses asks to see God's glory. And uh, God responds by telling Moses that he demonstrates his glory by forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, and at the same time, not leaving the guilty unpunished. Now that to our ears sounds like a contradiction. How can those two things possibly be true? But we discovered it's not a contradiction. Because the place where we see both of those things happening at the same time is at the cross of the Lord Jesus. Because on the cross, Jesus was bearing all of our guilt and our shame he experienced what it feels like not to matter to God because God turned his face away from him. And because that happened to him then, we can be forgiven now. And we can know for a certainty that we really do matter to God. And I hope you know that. If you do can I encourage you to use it to start a gospel conversation? Uh, Sometime in the next few days, uh, the Lord will certainly bring someone across your radar screen 
who is totally ignorant of these things, and you can ask them, do you know you matter to God? And then you can tell them why. Why don't you come back next week and tell us how you got on? Now, our passage this morning builds on what we learned last week as we consider God's holiness. Now, that is our big theme this morning. And what an important theme it is. Uh, One writer says that it is the central idea in the faith of Israel. And I've been wondering this week, is it the main idea in our faith? Where does holiness register in our thinking about God? God's holiness, of course, is something that we sing about. We've done that already this morning. We praise God for it. But uh, can I suggest that the majority of Christians don't really know what it means? And I say that because in recent times, the, the number one attribute of God that the church has wanted to teach is God's love. Now that, of course, is not a wrong thing. After all, the Bible says, God is love. But the church's teaching about the love of God has tended to be completely separated from any teaching on God's holiness. And uh, as a result, the understanding which many Christians have of the love of God is either distorted or in some cases, completely false. Because, you see, in the Bible, God's love is presented to us in a context. And if we ignore the context, well, we miss the true meaning. So I have one simple idea that I want us to take away with us this morning, and it is this. The way to experience God's love is to experience his holiness first. Let me say that again. The way to experience God's love is to experience his holiness first. Now, holiness in the Bible uh, combines two ideas. Uh, First of all, it tells us that God is separate and he is distinct. He's far above us. He lives on a completely different plane from us outside time and space. And secondly, his holiness tells us that he is morally perfect. But because it's not especially easy for us to understand those ideas, I want us this morning to think about what God's holiness means for us in our own experience. Well, Isaiah 6 supplies the answer. But we won't understand the message of Isaiah 6 unless we first of all look at the context. So please will you fasten your seatbelts and look back with me to Isaiah chapter 5. In uh, chapter 5, Isaiah has been pronouncing God's judgment of woe on the people of Israel for her rebellion and disobedience. So, for example... Glance back with me to chapter 5, verse 8, where we read, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. 
The idea there is that the property developers have moved in and uh, such is their greed that all thoughts of social justice and equality have gone out the window. Well, what about verse 11? Woe to those who rise up early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine, they have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord. He's saying that their self-indulgent lifestyle has totally blurred their appreciation for God and his mission. Let's have another one. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. In other words, their moral compass has become so confused that they're quite incapable of telling right from wrong anymore. Now, we look at uh, those verses and indeed the rest of chapter 5 and we say to ourselves, well, that's terribly up to date. Uh, He might have been talking about Cape Town. Well, of course, that's true. But um, actually, can I say that if we think that, we've completely misread Isaiah's message. Because the shock in Isaiah 5 is that God is not there talking to the great mass of unbelievers. No, he's talking to the people of God. This is a message for the church. It's the assembly of God's people who are behaving like this. And uh, as we come to Isaiah 6, what we're meant to see here is God not just preparing Isaiah for a very challenging ministry, but God dealing with his servant in the same way that God in his holiness deals with all his people in every generation, including you and me. So, what does an experience of God's holiness mean for us? Well, according to chapter 6, it means three things. Number one, God's holiness strips us. Verses 1 to 5. Now, the whole tone of the opening verses of the chapter is that Isaiah's experience of God's holiness was totally overwhelming. Verse 1, verse 1 I think sets the tone for us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now King Uzziah had ruled in Israel for 52 years. When he died, he left the nation of Israel in a state of complete uncertainty. I guess it was rather like that here in South Africa when Nelson Mandela died. People were saying, well, that's the end of an era. What's going to happen now? And amidst all of the uncertainty following the death of Israel's earthly king and weighed down by the terrible spiritual decline all around him, Isaiah is given a vision of the Lord, the everlasting king, seated on his heavenly throne. Notice the Lord is high and exalted. 
That means that he is far above humanity, totally separate from us. That is part of what it means for the Lord to be holy. And then as Isaiah kind of surveys the scene around the throne, his eye picks up the seraphs. Now that is an important detail. Uh, For one thing, it's the only place where seraphs are mentioned in all of scripture. The word seraph literally means burning one uh, in the sense of burning purity. So these are sinless, pure, heavenly beings. And yet in spite of their moral perfection, how do they react in the presence of the Lord? Please notice this. Can we see verse 2 in our Bibles? With two wings they covered their faces. You see, God is too holy. He's too morally perfect, even for the holy seraphs to look at. And the seraph's song in verse 3 tells Isaiah how to interpret what he's seeing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In other words, Isaiah, you might think that it's all chaos down there. But the Lord, who is all-powerful and absolutely pure, has all things under his perfect control all the time. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now please notice how Isaiah responds. He is devastated, isn't he? Verse 5. Woe to me, I am ruined. Isn't it interesting, the man who's been proclaiming woe to Israel in chapter 5 now sees himself as no different from them. And friends, isn't it true that the the closer that you and I get to God, the more clearly we see our own sin. And that can be a very humiliating experience. Now, what I want to say is that the big point to take away from Isaiah chapter 6 is that God can do very little with any of us until we see ourselves like this. Not doctrinally and theoretically, but really and truly ruined and lost apart from God's grace. Now, do you see yourself like that? And this needs to be a conviction that we never, never move away from. I am a man of unclean lips. I am the problem, not anybody else, not the church, not my parents, not my spouse, not my colleagues at work. No, it's me. Now, my dear friends, in recent years there has been a disturbing tendency to move all thoughts of personal accountability out of the church and look for someone to blame. Isaiah shows us that is complete nonsense. He teaches us that the closer we get to God by meditating on who God really is 
And as God shows himself to us through the pages of scripture, well, so all of our excuses and our feeble attempts to justify ourselves are revealed for the foolishness they are. But there's more. Um, All human beings have um, a self-image that they're comfortable with and they want to project out into the outside world. You've only got to look at Facebook to know that that's true. We touched on this last week, didn't we, when we looked at the glory or the significance that all of us by nature spend our lives looking for. And that image is the way we want other people to see us, including God, Because this this image that we've made or manufactured of ourselves in our minds, what does it do? It magnifies our virtues and it minimises our faults. Now that is why we need to look at Isaiah's repentance in verse 5 very carefully. Notice the place where Isaiah sees his greatest sin is his mouth. I am a man of unclean lips. Now that is a surprise because Isaiah's profession is a prophet. His mouth is the main channel of his ministry. So before his encounter with God, what would have been the thing that made him okay with God in his own mind? Well, his preaching, of course. But his experience of the holiness of God shows him that's quite wrong. Now, that is what we all need. We need to see that in the light of God's holiness, even the thing that we think is best about ourselves is something we need to repent of. If that sounds rather strange, won't you please turn over to the back of the pink question sheet where C.S. Lewis gives us a marvellous description of this truth in an extract from an essay called Is Christianity Hard or Easy? This is what he wrote. The almost impossibly hard thing is to hand over your whole self to Christ. But it's far easier than what we're all trying to do instead. For what we're trying to do is remain what we call ourselves, that is, our personal happiness, centred on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping despite this to behave honestly, chastely and humbly. That is exactly what Christ warned us you can't do. If I am a grass field... All the cutting will keep the grass short, but it won't produce wheat. If I want wheat, I must be ploughed up and re-sown. Now, my friends, before anything else, God's holiness strips us. We've got to go to God with everything, even the very best things about ourselves, and give it all to him. Because it's only as we stand before him with nothing to recommend us that we can begin to experience his love. God's holiness strips us.
Secondly, God's holiness heals us. Verses 6 and 7. I think it's still quite common today for people to imagine that there's some kind of interval between our confession of sin and God granting forgiveness. I think the image that we have in our minds is from those programmes on television about courtroom cases where the judge has to retire to consider his verdict. And in the meantime, the prisoner in the dock isn't entirely sure whether he's going to get off or not. That is not what happens here. Because no sooner has Isaiah stopped speaking, but we read in verse 6, notice this, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Three things to notice. First, God never shows you your sin except to heal you with his grace. Now, yes, God shows Isaiah that what he thinks is righteousness is actually sin, and Isaiah is crushed by that. Woe to me, I'm ruined. But the exercise has a purpose, because God wants to heal him. So, friends, when, when God shows us things in our own lives that really need to be changed. Let's not run away. Let's not try and justify ourselves or make silly excuses. Rather, let's see the uncomfortable truth as a necessary step to a much deeper experience of the love and grace of God. God wounds Isaiah with his holiness in order to heal him with his grace. Second thing to notice is that the cleansing is comprehensive. Isaiah simply confesses the sin that God has shown him, I'm a man of unclean lips, and then God deals with all his sin. How do we get there? The seraph who brings God's verdict says, your guilt is taken away. And the word guilt translates a word that refers to our fallen nature. It's talking about what we are by birth. And uh, the corruption that is part of Isaiah's DNA as a human being, descended from Adam, is immediately forgiven. And then the word for sin in verse 7 means all of his other shortcomings in relation to the law of God. Now friends, I want you to see just how liberating that is. Because you see, Isaiah's not asked to recite a comprehensive list of all his sins and be anxious in case he's forgotten any of them. No, the moment that he drops all pretensions to righteousness before God, God forgives him all his sins. 
past, present and even future. And then thirdly, notice that the cleansing is achieved through the payment of a price. They've got to work a bit harder here. But the verb that's translated atoned for in verse 7 means, quite literally, to ransom by means of a substitute. And that idea is supported by the fact that the means of cleansing was a live coal taken from the altar in verse 6. At the altar, you remember, was the altar of sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem, where people who'd sinned against God could offer an animal sacrifice as a substitute. Provided, of course, that the animal was perfect and without blemish. But isn't it interesting? There's no mention of an animal here. God simply says, your sin is atoned for, and the existence of an acceptable sacrifice is assumed. So if the ransom price for Isaiah's sin wasn't a sheep or a goat, and it's not mentioned that it is, what was it? Well, turn please to Mark 10 on page 714. Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, page 714. Now, while you're turning there, let me just remind you of the context. Um, The disciples have been arguing about who is the greatest in God's kingdom. So rather like the people we were thinking about last Sunday morning, the disciples at this point are only interested in the glory that men want. And Jesus gives them a marvellous lesson in true greatness. We'll pick it up at verse 43. Not so with you, says Jesus. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus is making the astonishing statement that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is not a powerful, impressive person. It's not someone who got top marks in all the exams. No, it's someone who emptied himself, who was stripped of all human glory and became a servant. And God in his holiness needed a sacrifice as perfect as that to heal us from our sin and guilt. Well, come back to Isaiah. God's holiness uh, strips us. God's holiness heals us. Thirdly and lastly, God's holiness transforms us. Uh, Verses 8 to 13. In verse 8, Isaiah is invited, I think, to sort of eavesdrop on what sounds to us a bit like a missionary committee meeting. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? 
And who will go for us? Uh, The us there is a reference to the three persons of the Holy Trinity. And they're discussing together which human being might possibly be suitably qualified to go and preach to the people of God. The change in Isaiah is absolutely astonishing. Because in verse 5, he thinks his ministry and his life are almost at an end. But now in verse 8, he's been healed. And immediately he puts his hand up and he says, Here I am, send me. And the Lord said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now what I want us to see in this last section of the chapter is that God sends Isaiah to fulfil a ministry that in human terms is going to look like a complete failure. We know that Isaiah preached to Israel for the next 50 years. And throughout those 50 years there was very little to encourage him. There was no revival there was no wholesale repentance. Actually, it was much worse than that. Uh, When Isaiah asks how long he's got to sign up for, the Lord says in verse 12, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. He's saying that the major landmark in Isaiah's ministry is going to be the invasion of Israel by Assyria in 722 BC and the dispersion of the ten northern tribes. Now can I ask you, would you sign up for that job? Does that sound like an exciting, successful ministry to you? Well notice that Isaiah is not put off. He's not frightened. He doesn't try and renegotiate the deal with God. He just goes and gets on with it. Faithfully, clearly, explaining the word of God week by week to people who don't listen, who don't understand, and who in the end are taken off into exile. I don't think that would get many of us out of bed on Monday morning, would it? The point is that Because of Isaiah's experience of God's holiness, listen to this, Isaiah is not afraid of failure. One of the great burdens that our culture has laid on men and women in the last 30 years is a crippling bondage to success. Uh, I say it's crippling because we've become so terrified of failure that we're reluctant to try anything new unless it's got success stamped all over it. 
And uh, while that's true in our everyday lives, the worst of it is that we've brought that bondage with us into our Christian lives and ministries. You know, it's not that we've actually given up sharing the gospel at work or inviting our next door neighbour to church. Most of us are too frightened to even get started. But one of the inescapable applications of this magnificent Bible text is that a, a real experience of the holiness of God leads to a call to gospel service with no fear of failure. So what did keep Isaiah going through the long years of rejection? Well, it's there in the last part of verse 13. But as the terebinth, that's, um, I looked that up before the service, that's the turpentine tree, if you're interested. Go and read about it afterwards. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So you see, what Isaiah does have to hold on to is the promise of the Holy Seed, which in chapter 11 of Isaiah's book becomes a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who of course is later revealed as the Lord Jesus. He's the one who's going to fulfil all of God's promises to bring God's blessing to all nations. So it wasn't just about Israel. As we close, there's one really important application for all of us to take away and think about this week. You see, we need to learn from Israel's mistake. They sat under the preaching of Isaiah for 50 years. That's a lot of sermons, isn't it? They never did anything with it. And nothing has changed since Isaiah's day. Multitudes go to church on Sunday. How many are taking God's word seriously? Well, you know the answer as well as I do. But you see, God's judgment on Israel is there as a warning for us. Because verses 9 and 10 are quoted no less than five times in the New Testament. Why is that? Well, because those verses are a warning to Christians in every age that sitting under the preaching of God's word is a hazardous pursuit because your heart never remains the same. And just as the sun shining from heaven can either melt wax or harden cement, so every time you sit under the Bible or sit under the preaching of God's word, your heart will either harden or soften. The one thing it will not do is remain the same. So, you can know whether you are right with God or not by the way that you're responding to his word even this morning. Uh, if you're finding this really rather dull and you can't see how it could possibly be relevant to you, 
That is a warning that you haven't yet experienced God's holiness. And if you haven't experienced God's holiness, you likely haven't experienced his love either. And it would be good for you to put that right this morning by asking the Lord to open your mind to see God for who he really is. You've got to start with that. We won't go anywhere till you've done that. On the other hand, if you believe that God is speaking to you through his word this morning and you are hearing his call to serve him in your own particular situation, whatever that might be, and however unpromising it might appear, that is a very good sign indeed that God has set his love upon you and that he will be with you in whatever you do and that in the end he will take you into glory. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heavenly Father, we confess that we easily forget how holy you are. Please forgive us as we meditate on your holiness today and into the week ahead. Move us to sincere repentance especially in those areas where we are self-righteous. And we pray that as you show us what we're really like inside, that you and your grace would heal us and transform us so that we would be bold in sharing the good news of Jesus with others as you give us opportunity. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Good, I'm going to ask the music team to come forward and we have an opportunity to respond to God's word before we take part in the Lord's Supper.